Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Patients During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Today's topic is Advances in Neuroimaging and Technology for AD Detection and Management. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. Hi, my name is Dr. Richard Isaacson. I'm an Associate Professor of Neurology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian and Director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian. I'm here today joined by my close colleague, Dr. Marwan Sabah. He's the Camille and Larry Ruvo Endowed Chair for Brain Health and Director of the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health at, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Marwan, thanks so much for joining us today, and I really look forward to our chat. Thank you, Richard. Good to see you again. So I guess where we're going with Alzheimer's disease is we're really advancing in our ability in terms of um, understanding the biomarkers and, and what clinically based tests we can use, um, not just today, but also um, going forward in the future. Um, on a previous podcast uh, for this series, we talked about a really interesting and, and cool uh, blood-based biomarker, serum biomarker, uh, PTAL217 and others. Uh, and then this topic is really going to focus more on um, brain imaging. And I felt uh, it would be a good idea to start off uh, with just reviewing for listeners, um, what do we now do? Like what's available today? What do practicing uh, memory disorder specialists use now to uh, understand what potential diagnosis could be going on? And then we can transition to what some of the new things, you know, the, the new tau uh, imaging study that was just uh, recently FDA approved. Um, and then of course, using technology, uh, you wrote a, a really terrific series of papers in the Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease, uh, looking at technological advances. Um, our group has used um, a wrist biosensor to do um, you know, non-invasive uh, passive tracking uh, that can help predict cognitive function. Uh, so we can end uh, on that topic. But uh, Maron, when someone comes in to see you nowadays, what do you do? If you, they have, um, I, I referred to you, one of my uh, close, close friends and, and, and uh, a great, great guy, one of my uh, high school teachers um, that you saw. Thanks so much for seeing him. They really appreciated that. Um, what, what do you do? What do you do in terms of uh, brain imaging uh, for evaluation? Yeah, so Richard, you know, historically Alzheimer's uh, diagnosis has been a diagnosis of exclusion, right? In the dementia state now we're talking. Uh, so that means we did a B12, TSH, and MRI looking for other pathologies like stroke and hydrocephalus and masses and, and hypothyroidism and B12 deficiency. It turns out that the literature is very clear on this, that the diagnostic accuracy uh, is only 66 to 75% accurate, meaning that we're missing the diagnosis or missing the pathology uh, up to a third of the time. So there's been a move in the field for a long time now, eight years or more, to move away from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion. And, you know, when we talk about in our last uh, podcast discussion about PTAU-217, plasma, uh, plasma tau is only the latest uh, uh, to the whole discussion. But the reason this is important is that structural imaging at this point has some benefit in terms of not only excluding target pathology, but now with the NeuroQuant software and other volumetric software, 
you can measure specific areas of the brain. And if you're looking at medial temporal lobe, uh, we know that if the uh, using NeuroQuant software, if the hippocampal volume is below the fifth percentile, it is a marker of neurodegeneration. So has good sensitivity for detecting evidence of neurodegeneration, but it does not have good specificity. So I have patients who have strong amnestic components, but their hippocampal volumes are, you know, in the 30 percentile. So does that mean they don't have target pathology? The answer is no, they just don't have neurodegeneration or markers of neurodegeneration. So my point is that uh, structural imaging right now still has its utilization, but uh, you cannot just say it's, um, it's, it's sufficient to look at target pathology. Uh, you know, FDG-PET can show good hypometabolism prior to temporal, and it's a marker of neurodegeneration as well. But I think the field is kind of moving, wants to move into amyloid uh, imaging, amyloid PET, tau PET, and I know we'll talk about that. So uh, clinical practice is still unfortunately based on the NIAA working group criteria, which says, it is uh, a clinical profile where biomarker evidence is considered advisory or not, but not essential. Whereas IWG, International Working Group, which is Europeans and Canadians, say amnestic progressive amnestic disorder would couple to a biomarker, any biomarker, PET, CSF, APOE, is a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So we are moving toward the idea of routine utilization of biomarker inclusion into the diagnostic algorithm, but it's not done. It's still a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting. American Academy of Neurology, the the diagnostic guidelines um, are, are from like I think like 20 years ago now, and they yeah. say order any neuroimaging test, either a CAT scan or MRI. Um, I think you know, for most um, you know neurologists and specialists, we're definitely more of an MRI type orderer. Um, you know, a CAT scan, sure, it can you know rule out a brain tumor and major strokes and things like that, old strokes. Um, but, you know, on our requisitions now, you know, we, we type for our radiologists, um, you know, question, you know, this is a person with progressive memory loss. Um, is there hippocampal atrophy? Is there global atrophy? And we write this in the requisition. So the radiologists, you know, can, can help us at least give some sort of visual read um, using um, tools like NeuroReader and NeuroQuant um, are, are super helpful, or at least they can be because they give the, the specific breakdown of, of, you know, what is the percentile of hippocampus and percentile of, of temporal lobe and, and things like that compared to the norm. Um, but of course, you know, uh, most, most neurologists, memory specialists will also look at the scans themselves just to get a feeling of, of how they look too. But I guess my question is, um, in, this, in the cases where, um, you know, there's, there's these new emerging syndromic types of Alzheimer's where maybe it's more executive dysfunction or maybe it's just memory and maybe we're thinking this is um, part like uh, primary age-related tauopathy or, you know, SNAP, suspected non-amyloid non pathology. Are there cases where we have a, an, an Alzheimer's patient coming in, they have a diagnosis, but it's a little bit atypical. Um, is there a biomarker of choice that you choose or prefer in more challenging cases? Do you prefer, for example, a spinal fluid test because then you get a little bit of tau, a little bit of amyloid, or, or do you not really think of it like that? No, actually for young people, so my definition of a young person is under age 65, I will tap them. And I do order the Athena A beta 42 tau and P tau and the ratio. I find it to be very accurate with good spec and sense. Uh, 
I uh, often will use FDG PET, although you know that FDG PET has its limitations. So the higher the mini mental score, this is from Bill Jagus. Uh, if your score is closer to normal 30, the, the sensitivity of FDG goes down. So you have to get more impaired mm. to see a higher, you, you know, to see the more differentiated uh, hypometabolism of the, the priotemporal regions. Uh, and um, so my point is, and, and of course, there are technical variations from site to site on the FDG PET. Yeah. So um, if I had a choice, I would tap people. Yeah. Um, I like amyloid imaging. It's binary, though. It's positive, negative. Uh, um, I, don't buy, I don't use SUVRs in clinical practice. Uh, to, to your audience, SUVR is standard uptake volume ratio. It is a measure of quantity of at burden, not just uh, binary. So, but to me, it's a positive, negative. It's either they, they have amyloid or they don't have amyloid. And I just haven't used uh, tau in clinical practice yet. Gotcha. Okay. Tau pet, I should say. Tau pet, right? So, actually, moving right along to kind of um, you know the future of uh, and the future in some ways is now because the FDA back in um, May 2020, I believe. Um, uh, that was uh, late, late May, yeah, May, late May 2020. Uh, the FDA really approved the first drug to image tau pathology in patients being evaluated for Alzheimer's disease, um, and this was exciting because you know we've um, we've we've really had tau pet in in clinical trials and in studies, but really to have a FDA approval uh, is is certainly helpful. Now the first FDA approved amyloid imaging test uh, was <coughs> approved back in uh, 2012. Uh, it's been a while since then they're still not reimbursed by insurance. They're still costly. So an FDA approval does not necessarily mean um, easy access or use. Uh, the costs are still uh, relatively high. Uh, but this uh, was uh, an agent called Flortausapir F18, or the uh, brand name is Tauvid. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, how do you think uh, tau, tau imaging is going to you know, be a part of our diagnostic armamentarium? Um, have you ordered um, uh, this test yet in, in clinical practice. Obviously, it's been uh, right smack in the middle of COVID-19, so uh, a lot of people don't really necessarily want a test uh, that, that, that won't definitively uh, maybe change management, although in this case it could, um, or maybe putting off some, some uh, radiology and other medical care uh, during, the, during the pandemic. Uh, what do you think about uh, this test, um, and what do you think of its ability to estimate, um, you know, aggregated the, the density and the distribution of aggregated tau uh, neurofibrillary tangles um, in, uh, which is a primary marker of the disease? Uh, I, so, uh, important questions, uh, Richard. Um, the, so, to the audience, the way these uh, agents, amyloid imaging agents and tau imaging agents, get uh, approved is basically. Uh, patients are enrolled proximate to death. You get their amyloid or tau imaging. You wait for them to die, and then you section their brain and correlate the brain sectioning to the tau imaging or the amyloid imaging, as the case may be. It's a very, very high threshold, a very, very high bar, very difficult to do. So I commend uh, the companies that do these because they're hugely laborious uh, and very expensive to do these kinds of studies. So what do we know is that uh, after we look at tau imaging, tau imaging clearly recapitulates the Brock staging. So if you actually look at the uh, German stage, Brock and Brock, who created the Brock staging for pathology, the neuropathological classification of Brock one through six 
is the spread of tau throughout the brain to hippocampus, medial temporal lobe, dentate gyrus, uh, temporal lobe, and then throughout the neocortex. And my point is, is that uh, when you look at tau imaging, clearly, 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 Brock and Brock had it right 30 years ago. Clearly, 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 tau imaging recapitulates Brock staging, and clearly, 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 uh, uh, the spread is exactly as they predicted it. Importantly for this audience, tau much better correlates to clinical progression than does amyloid. If you look now, we have years of data to suggest. Blessed Tomlinson and Roth published a paper in the British Medical Journal in 1968 suggesting that tau was a better predictor of correlation of, of progression than amyloid. And that started a 40-year debate, and they were right. They were right in 1968. And so uh, the point is, is that when you look at tau imaging, tau correlates very well to clinical progression and amyloid does not. If you look at amyloid path, uh, PET, from mild, moderate to severe Alzheimer's dementia, the amount of amyloid burden in the brain stays relatively stable. Um, you asked me, do I use it yet? The answer is no. The question is, does it add any value? Okay, so my point is, is that tau imaging is a good marker of progression, but the question is, is, it, is would you use it in a binary way? So amyloid would be used in a binary manner, right? Positive, negative. You have the pathology, you don't have the pathology. Uh, but you would not use it in a longitudinal tracking kind of manner, whereas tau imaging could be used in longitudinal tracking manner. So um, I think they're going to be used differently. I just haven't used it in clinical practice yet. I've used amyloid in, in practice, but not tau. Great. Okay. Well, that's that's super helpful. Um, I, I think, you know, our, our patients see these um, releases um, and they get excited. They want the, the newest test. Sometimes they see uh, they want the tau test, the blood test. We say it's not available. They then Google. They say, I want the tau brain test. They say, let's talk about this. Let's have a video visit. Let's discuss. Um, you know, this um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, we, we're, we're, our hands are tied a little bit in terms of some of the traditional things, um, you know, from, from trying to make a diagnosis, we may not be able to bring people in as, as easily to do cognitive testing. And if we, um, you know, some of us, you know, we, our clinic has uh, changed over to now doing a cognitive battery online, although that's for people with minimal complaints with people with dementia, it's a lot harder to do cognitive tests online. So sometimes people just want to know. And um, I've also have not yet, um, uh, actually, I, I, I've spoken to one person who's wanted the Tau Pet for a while because of this kind of atypical case. She started having symptoms around 64. She's now 66. Um, amyloid Pet was negative, but she has what, um, she, I think she has something going on, but amyloid was negative. So she's, you know, rip raring to go to, to try to get um, uh, a Tau Pet. Um, but I think time will tell uh, on how, how much we use it and, and, of course, the insurance reimbursement. Um, along those lines with insurance reimbursement, um, the IDEAS study was just a really um, a, quite an endeavor um, that uh, was undertaken to try to figure out, does doing these brain images um, change management and, and, you know, an effort to get uh, Medicare to, and insurance reimbursers to, 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 to pay back uh, for these tests, because these tests, you know, can cost thousands of dollars, three to five thousand, five to seven thousand, depending on which market and which test. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Do you think that uh, reimbursement um, changes are coming down the pike uh, for these tests, or you think that we still have a little ways to go? Yeah. So uh, 
I hope so. We do know that uh, tau imaging is about 9,000. Amyloid imaging is somewhere in the four to $5,000 range. Uh, so far, they're approved technologies, but they're not reimbursed. Yeah. Uh, IDEAS basically was a Medicare demonstration pr uh, project of 18,000 scans in patients uh, to determine if having the amyloid imaging, this was amyloid imaging, not tau imaging, would alter, influence, uh, change diagnosis, change management, change uh, approach, change what we say to our patients, do to our patients. And the answer was decidedly yes. So when Jagil company uh, published their paper in, in JAMA last year, it clearly showed that physicians changed 6% of the time. The diagnosis changed, the discussion changed, uh, the outcome changed, or the outcome, uh, the, how we approach the patient changed. So the specific aim one of the, of the ideas study was, um, uh, was uh, uh, met that it did change habit. Specific aim two was a longer term play, which I just reported out at AIC, which is did it impact management? Did it impact management to the point where you could change healthcare outcomes? And they wanted to see a 10% change, and they did not meet their specific aim two. They only saw a 5% change. And therefore, Medicare still, after $100 million and 18,000 patients, still won't pay for an amyloid imaging. We hope they'll show a little bit more flexibility with power imaging, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to see that change either. Yeah, I worry about uh, the similar similar things. Um, and to me, um, you know, doing a spinal tap is you know laborious, and a lot of patients don't want it. Um, but sometimes you have to do the path of least resistance. And in terms of uh, financially uh, motivated paths, um, you know, a spinal fluid tests are kind of a little bit easier in that sense. But let's see, let's see where the winds blow. Let's see what the regulatory bodies um, do with a variety of um, you know therapeutics that are under review, and um, you know potentially you know, the needle will be moved um, otherwise, for sure. Right, and, and we do know that uh, we're going to have to, if we're going to start using aducanumab, there will be a requirement to prove amyloid positivity. So this discussion is very germane to the time yeah. because the question is, is, will in the U.S., will we be leaning toward doing amyloid imaging uh, first or will we be in, inclined to do CSF testing? And we may be forced to make a decision out of our hands, it just may be dictated to us. Yeah, exactly. And and um, uh, if 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 we have a drug that's approved that is only approval is only able to be used if you have amyloid, then something has to change about the current situation. So we will uh, we will see where that goes. Um, so maybe transitioning a little bit. Um, when it comes to using technology, um, and you know, you you uh, you were the lead author on several uh, publications in the Journal of Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. I really enjoyed um, reading those publications. I actually read every word of all three papers. I had, wow. read, I had to read an editorial, so I had to you know make sure I knew what I was talking about. Um, so uh, really, honestly, terrifically well written papers. You had a really great. Um, group of people. Um, and, and the three papers, um, if people want to look at them, uh, one was about the, the rationale really for early diagnosis of MCI, mild cognitive impairment, using emerging digital technologies. Um, the other one was about early detection of MCI, I believe, in, for, in primary care settings. And then the other one was um, early detection of MCI um, in at-home settings. So a lot of this stuff kind of dovetails with the work we do. 
Um, and I guess maybe just give us an overview. Um, where do you think the field of Alzheimer's disease is going in terms of using digital technologies? Now, I guess there's two ways to think about it. There's digital biomarkers, digital assessment tools, um, and whether that's through passive tracking or active tracking, computerized testing, there's a variety of ways, I guess, to interpret that. And then the other side is, um, what about digital therapeutics? And maybe that's a little beyond the scope of this discussion, but um, there's some interesting things going out there uh, in that regard too. Um, so maybe you can give us an overview of those uh, of the of the state of the science. So uh, we are now considering, Richard, the idea of re-engineering in, in its entirety, the whole clinical experience. Wouldn't it be great? Uh, and that's kind of where these discussions are going. If we could. Um, uh, start the uh, screening assessment long before the patient steps foot in your clinic. They could log in, you know, they have to register online nowadays. You do some kind of uh, at home computer based uh, or even digit other digital technology, a screening tool, screening measure. Uh, and so by the time they come in the door, you use the time more efficiently, you could do a lot more uh, things. So the, the idea is, is that the technologies are good, and I know you use them in your practice, or you're, you're starting to deploy them in your practice. Uh, I think they're good enough to be screening tools. Uh, I'm not sure that they're mature enough to be absolute diagnostics, but I think they are good enough to be screening tools, and there are a variety of them. I just saw, for example, I was talking to a company who was developing the digital clock draw tool, and it had very good sensitivity and specificity and that's something that could be digitized and they actually had a tablet and all kinds of things. So I think that the state of the science is moving rapidly. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think with COVID-19, we've even had to move even more rapidly. Um, yeah. we, we launched a, a website that initially was, was for our clinic. Um, it was really because when people come to seek care for reduction, reduction of risk of Alzheimer's disease, um, there's a lot of differential, like what, what is actually does that mean? What is Alzheimer's prevention? How do you do that? Is that really possible? So we would see patients in the clinic and it would take like, you know, 20 minutes of the visit to explain all that. So we launched a, a free website. It's available for free. Um, and everyone can, anyone can use it, but it was a digital coursework about educating the public about that. And then we, um, back in 2014, I believe, um, added some cognitive assessments, uh, a paired associates test, uh, an associative memory test, um, so that when people came into the clinic, we had a little bit, just kind of like you said. But at that time, you know, and even today, these tools are, are rudimentary. Where we're going and where the field needs to go is when someone truly presents to the clinic they are deeply characterized, you know, from a phenotypic uh, cognitive assessment perspective um, and using these digital tools, um, I think has a ton of promise. The tricky thing is, is well, which digital tool? And you know, our department, <coughs> excuse me, over, over the weekend, my chairman and I were discussing this actually, like which tools to use? There's this tool and there's this company and there's that company and how much does this cost? And what are the diagnostic codes you can use for that one? And I think there's really just a tremendous lack of consensus. Um, you know, we started using the NIH toolbox, uh, you know, like literally the first day it came out. Um, and then now we've been able to, you know, transition a lot of our assessments through telemedicine, but that really, necessitates a, a cognitive uh, a psychometrist, a cognitive tester to administer the tests online. Um, but I guess, is your feeling that in time, at some point, we're going to have um, an agreed upon um, standard of, of, of cognitive assessment that can be done at home? Or do you think 
just because of the nature of so many different companies out there, so many different uh, practice patterns and, and individual preferences, do you think that there, there can be a, a standardization met or, or, or not so much? Uh, I think that I worry that we will not get to a standardized approach or test battery or methodology. Uh, you know, you, you can't even get U.S. Preventive Task Force to endorse the idea of uh, routine screening of cognitive impairment. So uh, I think that we're still behind on that. I would love to see that we can agree that screening of cognitive impairment at your annual Medicare visit is an imperative and then use some simple tool, but they can't even agree on that. So I don't see this being adopted quickly. I'd, uh, I'd like to be, I, to be tell you that I'd, I would love to see that, but I don't see it being adopted quickly and I don't see it um, uh, seeing any kind of standardization or uniformity. And you see that of course, because you got MOCAs and mini mentals and uh, mini COGS and uh, 6EIT, et cetera. And the point is, is that we can't even get standardization on cognitive assessments in the office. So I don't know that you'll see uniformity in the field. Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree. And you know, it's um, I feel very comfortable with the NIH toolbox because I've been, we've been using it for so long. Um, right. but, you know, and also as an odor identification test. You know, for remote administration during COVID nineteen, we're mailing the nine item smell card, um, and that's cool. That's yeah, it 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 actually works just as well. It's totally totally doable. Um, so you know, we're we're <coughs> kind of learning on the fly with this, but you know, the NIH toolbox alone. Um, isn't sufficient. So we do a paragraph recall, we do a associative memory test, we do, um, you know, other tests, we can't do trails B anymore. So that's unfortunate, but we can do category fluency, animal naming, FAS. So we're kind of like learning on the fly and doing whatever we can. But, but yeah, I mean, other people I've spoken to, like, getting to a consensus is going to be very tricky. I, I hope that yes, we can. Yes you know, getting some sort of a uniform data set out there that we can, you know, use this for not just clinical care, but for research is going to be critical. So we'll see what happens. We agree. Um, otherwise, in terms of technology, um, you know, our group has been um, looking at um, using a wrist biosensor that looks at um, a variety of things from sleep metrics, um, total sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep, as well as um, cardiovascular metrics, uh, heart rate variability, resting pulse, uh, exercise strain, and, and we published a paper also in the Journal of Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease, a feasibility study. Um, and do you have much hope that there are, um, that there really truly is potential for digital biomarkers? You know, we, for example, we did the feasibility study, we applied for a grant, we were all excited, we had all these great plans, and then um, the reviewers just felt that this was all just, this wasn't going to pan out. A digital biomarker, risk, risk, but come on, you, you can't, you can't expect that this will really um, you know, predict cognitive outcomes, even though our feasibility study did. Um, do you think there's just, this is just too early? Do you think there's too much skepticism or do you think digital and, 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 and you know, passive tracking um, is, is something that, that is going to be real? So um, I think you, uh, and that's what I've always admired about you, Richard, you're always ahead of the curve and you're before your time. For better you know, or worse, man. For better or for worse. I mean, you, you have already said that you're three people throwing tomatoes at you uh, when you start your Alzheimer's prevention clinic. I'm saying to you that it's, uh, it's before it's time. Eventually, uh, we'll get there. I don't know if we'll settle on a standard battery or standard method, but we will get there. Uh, uh, the advantage of the RISC-type platforms is it's going to give you ancillary data, right? The, 
you know, kind of like step count. It gives you ancillary data, sleep quality, et cetera. So you can use this in a way to say, look, we can target risk and outcomes. But I see those kinds of you those kinds of technologies useful more for prevention than for treatment or in the in the disease state. In the symptomatic disease state, I'm not sure that these things will be as useful as they might be in the, in the prevention paradigm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, time will tell and we need to be, well, I hope that reviewers for grants are open-minded to this stuff because if we don't study it rigorously, then, you know, it's it's just going to be focus, focus and, and underutilized. So. Right. Well, that's great. I think, you know, we've, we've, um, we still have a little ways to go with, with therapeutics with, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, any sense about digital therapeutics? There are uh, companies now that are being created. There are software programs um, that, are, that, are, that are coming out. Do you think um, uh, at some point in the next, in the coming years, a digital therapeutic market for Alzheimer's, do you think we're there yet or we're just still a little bit um, uh, further behind? So digital therapeutics would be things like CogStim kind of paradigms or something else? Yeah, and, and you know, so automated software solutions. Um, you know, this is a pretty, you could, I guess, broadly define it. And, and actually, you're exactly right. There really isn't a um, set definition um, for digital therapeutics just yet when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, diabetes management and, um, you know, depression management, there are, are platforms out there that, that do exist. Um, and that have gotten some traction commercially, but you know, not exactly from the regulatory authorities. Um, do you think we're just kind of a little bit ways away? I guess you haven't seen too much out there that's kind of ready for prime time yet. Yeah, I think we are a little bit a ways away. Well, you know, the National Academy of Sciences, uh, uh, Engineering and Medicine did endorse COG-STEM as, co as a brain health strategy to maintain and preserve and prevent. Yeah. But uh, the idea of therapeutics, COGSTIM therapeutics, in the in the disease state, once you have symptoms, I think the literature hasn't been settled on that. So uh, I think we're a little bit a ways away from that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay, well, Marwan, okay, Mar as always, uh, I really appreciate the time. Learned a lot. Enjoyed Thank the you. chat. And um, Thank you. hopefully we're back here again in uh, AIC. 2021 recap and hopefully the meeting actually happened because um, I would have loved to go to Amsterdam. Where is it supposed to be next year? Is it San Boston. Boston? So it's down the street from you. Okay, I could do Boston. Uh, I'm a Yankees fan, but I could do Boston. That'll work. <laughs> uh, Marwan, thanks again so much. Really appreciate it. Richard, good to see you. Cool. Thanks so much. Bye.